glad to be in church today. Mm, that's good. Thank you, Don. Thank you so much. And, and your choir and musicians, your faithfulness uh, to lead us in worship each week. It uh, means so much. What a blessing. And uh, it is. And we're so blessed as a church. So thank you. We're all so fortunate and blessed by God to have his word. And so I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew to a section known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount consists of three chapters, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, containing 111 verse. Jesus delivers this sermon most likely over several days, he withdraws from the multitudes, goes up to a, the side of a, a mountain, and to there he's alone with his disciples to teach them lessons regarding what it means to know God and what it means to have a genuine, genuine walk, a relationship with God. John Stott, one of my favorite uh, Theologians and scholars noted that the Sermon on the Mount might be the best known teaching of Jesus, although perhaps the least understood and the least obeyed. He also referred to it as the Christian manifesto, the surest summary of who Christ expects us to be and what Christ expects us to do. It would serve us well to remember a little background that Matthew is writing primarily to Jews, Jews who believed in God, Jews who prided themselves in their faith, they prided themselves in their religious traditions and practices, a people proud of their rich spiritual history, and for the most part considered themselves to be pretty good, pretty all-around people that, that were good, in, and in many ways they were. However, Jesus knew that most of their goodness was largely external. On the outside, they looked good. They did the right things. They prided themselves in knowing God's law. But on the inside, Jesus knew it was a different story. While their public appearance seemed fine, their private lives were carnal, their motives had become corrupt, they had twisted the law, their hearts had grown spiritually cold. And there in your Bible, if you would look with me in Matthew chapter 5, here in the, in the entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 18, 19, and 20 really are the key. This is the main point that to everything that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, and I invite you to read it with me, Matthew 5, verses 18 through 20. Read with me. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away... One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it's all fulfilled. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And here's the key. Look at verse 20. For I say to you 
that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Circle verse 20. Jesus, Jesus is contrasting two kinds of righteousness. He is contrasting self-righteousness with true righteousness. One of those righteousnesses will provide you entrance into the kingdom of heaven, bringing forth salvation, and the other righteousness will not. Self-righteousness is centered on us. Self-righteousness is centered on me. It's centered on you. And it's based upon the false notion that my right standing with God is determined and measured by what I do. And in many cases, it's measured by what I don't do. That I can work and be good and earn a right standing with God and feel pretty good about myself in the process. On the other hand, true righteousness based upon the gospel reality is there is nothing that I do and nothing that I don't do that provides me with a right standing with God. Some of you have heard of the famous American evangelist, Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was known for his bombastic preaching style. He used slang in his messages. He was a former baseball player, and they say that he would often, in order to make a point, he would run across the preaching platform, and he would slide down on his knees as as he was going into a base, and he would throw up his finger to make his next point. Sunday died in 1935, having preached to millions and millions of people, he was considered to be the forerunner to all of the Billy Graham crusades. And I tell you all of that to tell you that the two main subjects or vices that Billy Sunday called them that he preached against and he included in every message, are you ready? Two vices that he said were destructive to the Christian life he addressed in every sermon were two things. They were, are you ready? They were card playing and dancing. Let me quote what Billy Sunday said. Cards and dancing are doing more to harm the spiritual life of the church than bars. The dancing Christian can never be a soul winner. Dancing is nothing more than romantic, hunging, and mischief set to music. I was sitting here Friday night, night to shine, and I started wondering to myself what Billy Sunday might have thought about Friday night. And he may have added karaoke to the list of vices. I was thinking about that, and, and I was reminded of almost 40 years ago of an incident that occurred in my life, and 
I, I was a young preacher just getting ready to, I was actually pastoring my first church and I hadn't been ordained and so I was going to go through this ordination and examination and so for weeks and weeks I was studying my Bible and reading the Baptist faith and message and kind of shoring up on my position on doctrines and going through my call and my sense of call and just really preparing, praying for this. I was a little nervous. The time came for me to be examined and to go through all of these questions. We just put Jack Hickey through it here a few weeks ago, grilled him pretty good for two hours. He did great. The time for my examination finally arrived, and there was an older gentleman. His name was Brother Roy. And he and I later became friends. He's gone on to be with the Lord now. But during my examination, it was nothing like what I thought. Brother Roy sincerely asked me if I would promise, if I would promise to avoid the sinful and harmful practice of removing my shirt in public as a minister of the gospel. As a minister of the gospel, will you promise that you will no longer remove your shirt in public? I hadn't prepared for that question. How many of you think I said yes, that I promised I would never again remove my shirt in public? How many of you think I said no and I gave some witty or solid, profound gospel response to that question? Well, I said yes. Yes, sir. I was young and dumb and nervous and I agreed as a minister of the gospel and told Brother Roy I would never do that. I will tell you that today, as much as possible, I try to keep my shirt on. <laughs> and it's not because of my promise, and it's not because if I remove it, I think it's a sinful practice as a minister of the gospel, but more because of the harmful effects that it might have on my neighbors. <laughs> Why do you think that Billy Sunday and other people to this day are so preoccupied, preoccupied with things that seem so incidental. I can tell you what I think. I think it's because it's easier for us to draw lines, to make lists, and to define what is sinful before God and, and define what's acceptable to God, it's easier to do that than it is to abide in Christ ourselves and spend time in meditation on his word and spend time in prayer. It's just easier, it's quicker to develop a self-righteous checklist that we follow and often want everyone else to follow. It's easier to do that than relying upon the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Don't you think that we're still prone to painting our own picture of what it looks like on the outside to be a good Christian? That being a good Christian means that, and we come up with lists, you belong to a certain political party. And as a good Christian, you vote the way that I vote. 
And as a good Christian, you espouse the same views that I do about social media, and you agree with me on movie ratings, and you agree with me on the observance of Halloween, and you agree with me that raffle tickets for good causes is still gambling, and you, and then probably the most important, you agree with me about thermostat settings and what they ought to be in the church sanctuary. In this text, Jesus is teaching his disciples about righteousness, about real righteousness, true righteousness, on what it means to be in a right relationship with God. That's the context, that's the setting that we're going to consider when Jesus provides this instruction on prayer. You and I understand that righteousness, a right standing with God and being saved is a gift. It's a gift from God. It's something that he provides for us. Something that he made available to us through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in who Jesus is and faith in what Jesus did for us on the cross. Faith that he was raised he was crucified publicly, died, was buried, and raised on the third day, defeating sin, defeating death for us. And so our faith is in Jesus. That's where our righteousness comes from. It's the only way for our sins to be forgiven. It is the only way for us to be reconciled with God. It is the only way to be brought into a right standing with God. And it's the only way to be kept in a right standing with God. It's all through Jesus. It's nothing about what you and I do. It's all about who he is and what he did. The religious leaders of Jesus' day misunderstood themselves to be righteous. We are good people. We're the chosen race. We're Jews. They reason that we, we know the rules. We have God's law and we keep the rules. We don't do these things and we do these things and they especially emphasize all the things that we don't do, they're listed in the Sermon on the Mount. We don't murder anyone. We don't commit adultery. We don't steal. We don't do all of those openly bad things. And we're righteous. We're good people. We're better than those other people. But Jesus knew better. Jesus knew that their righteousness was extremely external. It was all on the outside. Would you, and we're going to read in just a moment our text, and I'll be going to work through it very quickly, but would you keep your place, and would you just turn over a few chapters to the 23rd chapter of Matthew's gospel? I want you to listen how Jesus describes their sense of self-righteousness. Matthew chapter 23. So go there with me. And let's read together just three verses, starting in the 25th verse. Again, Jesus' further description of their self-righteousness. Matthew 23, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside 
They're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inwardly are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The outside contrasted with the inside. On the outside, you look good, you look clean. On the inside, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. On the outside, you are whitewashed tombs. You appear beautiful. But on the inside, dead men's bones. No heart. Dry and lifeless. Full of, and mark that phrase, full of every kind of impurity. It's telling Every kind of impurity, every kind of sin characterizes you inwardly. And in verse 26, Jesus there provides the solution. This is the fix. He's, and it's basically this. He's telling them, stop focusing on yourselves. Stop focusing on your own efforts to be better, to do better, to improve, and cetera, which is the norm. That's the natural instinct. And Jesus said, instead, the solution is turn your focus away from yourselves and focus on God, on who he is and his grace. And one of the areas where they were missing the mark regarding this self-righteousness was in the area of prayer. When they prayed, which they did, they prayed, their focus was on themselves. Read with me our text, Matthew 6, starting at verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Let me pray. Father, we need you. In these closing minutes, we ask that your spirit would teach us and encourage us to be men and women who are righteous because of Christ and who pray with our hearts. And we pray genuinely 
and trust in you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Your Bible open there in Matthew 6. I want to point out a couple of things that are obvious. Verse 6, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. If you go back in chapter 5, as he begins this, what we classify as a sermon on a mountain, notice how it begins in Matthew 5, 1 and 2. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So he pulls away from the crowds. Verse 2, then he opened his mouth, and he taught them. He taught them. He is withdrawn, pulling away from these large crowds, and he is there with his disciples. Second, I want you to notice in verse 6, verse 7, and also in verse 8, the phrase, each verse begins with it, when you pray. So he's speaking to his disciples, and three times he says, when you pray. It doesn't say, fellas, ladies, if you pray, but when you pray, Jesus is teaching his disciples with this correct assumption that those who follow me, those who are my disciples, will pray. They will be people, men and women of prayer. And one, that's one of the distinguishing marks of following Jesus. Is that true of you? Does prayer characterize your walk with Jesus? Does prayer characterize your relationship with God? Then from the text, Jesus describes two men at prayer with two kinds of praying. He states, this is how they pray. This is the reason they pray, and this is the reward. We say those again. This is how they pray. This is the reason they pray, and this is the reward. And so first consider this, the prayers of the self-righteous. The prayers of the self-righteous. Jesus calls them hypocrites. He refers to them later as heathens. The Greek word for hypocrite is hypocrites. Hypocrates was a, a theater term. It's used to describe actors and actresses who would often play more than one part. And so instead of changing costumes between scenes, the actors, the actresses would wear different masks. The point is a hypocrite is a person who wears masks, who pretends to be a different person. Sometimes they might look and act one way, and then in another setting and context, they might look and act another way. Jesus is describing how the religious hypocrite prays. He says from verse 5, and at first it seems fine. Notice he says they love to pray. Verse 5, they love to pray. It appears fine to begin with, but then Jesus clarifies the reason they love to pray. It's not because they love prayer. It's not because they love God that they're supposed to be praying to. Instead, they love themselves. And they love the opportunity that public prayer provides them. It gave them an opportunity to parade themselves. All devout Jews prayed. They prayed regularly. They prayed three times. You remember in the Old Testament, the story of Jan Daniel. He prayed morning, afternoon, late afternoon. 
Jesus is not saying there's anything wrong with standing to pray. I hope not. He's not saying there's anything wrong with praying on a street corner. He's not saying there's anything wrong with praying in the synagogue. What he was saying was their reason or their motive for doing so was wrong. If you, this morning, if you opened your Sunday school class with prayer, that's fine. That's public prayer. That's okay. If you meet with someone this week on a soccer field or a, in a gymnasium and you're there with that person and you decide to pray with that person publicly, that's great. That's good. I was coming out of the post office this week and saw a mom from our church here and her daughter pulled up into the parking lot and, and the young girl rolled down her window and the little girl said, Brother Charlie. I said, hello, and I walked over to the window and she said, uh, would you pray for me? And I said, well, I'll be glad to pray for you. What's going on? She said, I'm going to the dentist tomorrow and I'm scared. <laughs> and so I leaned into the car a little bit with the girl and her mother and I prayed. Prayed for her in the parking lot, standing, <laughs> publicly. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's good. It's good for us to pray with each other whenever we're together, wherever, wherever we are. But just suppose that when she asked me to pray for her, I said, oh, I'd be glad to. And I backed up from the window a little bit and I raised my hands and raised my voice and used my church speak, Almighty oh, God, I'm drawing attention to myself for everyone to see and hear and pray to long one. All of it to draw attention, to gain approval, to applause, to impress others who are going in and out of the post office. Then that's another matter. In that case, the motive was one of pride. In verses 5 and 7, Jesus says, it's the way the hypocrites pray. It's the way heathens pray. Do you believe that the same kind of religious Phariseeism is alive today? Do you believe that people are still critical of churchgoers as religious actors that were hypocrites? Do any of us attend church each week for the same reason the Pharisees went to the synagogues? To enhance our standing with people? To develop a reputation? Because this is what good people do. It's the upstanding thing to do. This is what it means to be a good citizen in the community. It's what I've grown up doing. I've done it all my life, and so that's why I do it. Do we attend and pray and praise the Lord all the while concerned that others will praise us? Concerned that others will be impressed with us? Jesus says it's fake, it's self-righteous, and notice what he says of that kind of lifestyle, that kind of praying. He says the reward is nothing from God. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. He warns, take heed, beware. 
that you do not do your charitable deeds. And later in this chapter, he, de he defines what the charitable deeds are. They're praying, fasting, and giving. Praying, fasting, and giving. And so he warns, beware, be careful. Take heed that you do not do these things before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Look at verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, and they, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, says this again, I say to you, they, they have the reward. Which is no reward from God at all. Then Jesus describes the way the righteous pray when we understand that our righteousness is a gift from God he describes it first notice the how how should we pray look at verse 6 he says go into your room go into your closet and shut the door that's how the righteous pray go into your room into your closet shut the door get alone with God Find a place that, where you're free of distractions. Find a place where you're free from being disturbed, to be away from the eyes of other people, from the ears of others, to be, to be hidden away with God. And Jesus says there in that secret place, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, which means that your Father is with you in that secret place. You get this picture of God, our Heavenly Father, who is there in that room, there in that secret place, alone with us, waiting for us, welcoming us in. And in prayer there alone in His presence, you and I pray and pour out our hearts to Him. That's that's prayer. Prayer is seeking God. More than anything else, prayer is seeking God. The psalmist said it best. Thou hast said, seek my face. My heart then responds to you. Your face, Lord, your face do I seek. You see, prayer is mostly about God. It's mostly about seeking him, to know him, to acknowledge him as our creator, as almighty God, as Lord, as ruler, as judge. It's really about him and us getting our lives in line with him, to meet alone with him in secret and to say, God, I bow before you. I confess my sins. God, I submit my life freely again to you. I surrender my life over and over again to you and worship you. Jesus went on to say, and your father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. He will reward you openly. What does that mean? If, if you have your Bible and you have a pen, I want you to go to verse six and I want you to circle a word because this is really, really rich. And what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 6 again with me. But when you pray, go into your room, your closet, 
The word there for room is temion. And there's no, in the Greek, there's no other English equivalent for that word. Because the word room there, or closet, literally translates, tamion, it literally translates to a storehouse. If the Bible translators said, when you pray, go into your storehouse, we would be left scratching our heads. It's translated room, but it means storehouse. So write this down. Remember this, a room, a closet, a place that Jesus says we are to get along with God, to go into that room. The idea, the message is a room where treasures have been gathered and stored up for you. Get along with God into a place where he has gathered up treasures and he has stored them up for you. You see, the lesson is our Father in heaven has gathered up treasures on our behalf. They've been stored up for us and he's waiting for us to seek him, to come into his presence, to receive in prayer the treasures that he stored up for us. Do you remember in Luke's gospel, Jesus said to the disciples, oh, how even us being sinful parents know how to give good gifts to our ch children. Oh, how much more the heavenly father knows how to give good gifts to his kids. How much more he knows how to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Jesus is describing the hidden rewards that he has prepared for us. We'll spend time with him. Paul described it to the Corinthians. He said, eye has not seen, nor has ear ever heard, nor has it entered into the heart or the thinking, the mind of a man, the things, the things that God has prepared for his people. The apostle Paul in chapter 5 of Romans in chapter 8 described it this way, whenever we as his children cry, Abba, Father, he says the Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are indeed his children and we are given strong assurance of his fatherhood and of his love. There are people of our church family today who need some assurance people who are going through trials, real tests. Lives are in the balance in God's hands who are going before him in prayer to say, God, I need your assurance. I need some treasure from you. I need some things that, God, you've prepared for me today to sustain me. Let me close. I'm ask Brother Don and musicians to come and Jesus describes here the prayers of the righteous and describes the prayers of the self-righteous. And in Luke's gospel, this is what Jesus says about these types of prayers. Listen to me and we'll, we'll be finished. And Jesus spoke this parable to some, some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised other people. 
two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. One was self-righteous. And the self-righteous Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, like extortioners, tax collectors, unjust, adulterers, or even this guy. God, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I'm not sinful. I do good things. And then Jesus says, and the tax collector stood afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but with his head down, bowed, he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus concludes, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Have you been made righteous with God? Have you prayed, asking God to forgive you of your sins? Have you prayed asking God to cleanse you, to extend this gift of righteousness to you, this right standing with you, with God, by placing your faith in Christ? I will say this to you. If you pray that prayer today, God will hear you. God will forgive you and God will save you. And he'll give you a right standing, a righteous standing with God. He'll crest. Those of us who have assurance that we're followers of Christ, are you prayerful? Does prayer characterize your life? God, I need you. God, I'm seeking your face. I want my life to be in alignment with yours. I pray so that it's the case. Let's, let's pray as we stand together. Would you stand with me as we pray, as we prepare to sing? Father... Have your way in us today. God, we seek your face. God, we need you. Have your way in these closing moments that the freedom brought forth by your Holy Spirit would move us, that we would respond to you, to your voice and faith. However you call, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.